Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to Emergency Trauma Mama's podcast for another fun episode. Today, we're going to be talking about the lethal trauma triad of death. So, how many of you have heard of that before or know what it is? And that's a good starting point to talk about because sometimes people hear that and they're not exactly clear on even what that entails. So those of you that have taken the courses, uh, ATLS, TNCC, probably it's in the new edition, I'm guessing, of EMPC. I'll find out in another week or so, um, the fifth edition. I know it's in the seventh edition of TNCC, and I'm I'm quite certain it'll be in the eighth edition as well. But I'm sure you've heard that term tossed around quite frequently. So what does that mean? So as trauma patients, they can go into what's called the lethal triad or the trauma triad of death, which I prefer to refer to it as, because there's three things that that is composed of. And I tend to think about things in mnemonics. I'm a a mnemonic girl. I can't help it. That's how I memorize my cranial nerves. That's how I memorize everything. So if you're a mnemonic person, I always think of hack. So hack being H stands for hypothermia. So you have a trauma patient that's cold, which is no bueno. Uh, A is for acidosis. So we know when patients are in shock, they go into an acidotic state or just due to the fact that, you know, they can roll into the trauma room with a lactate of 10 because they've been almost in what you want to call like an anaerobic state of oxygenation, ventilation. They haven't been getting enough um, perfusion out to the tissues. So they've been in almost, when you think of Krebs cycle, like an anaerobic state. So their lactics tend when they hit the trauma room or the recess room. So they're already in an acidotic state. So they're not going to roll in with your perfect pH of 7.35 to 7.45. Typically, we do see these patients in an acidotic state because of what I just mentioned. Because they've lost blood. They've had massive hemorrhage of some, whether it's internal, external, um, you know, it just depends on the patient. However, they typically do come to us in an acidotic state. And I, as I mentioned, I, I've seen patients roll in with a lactate, uh, point of care lactate of like between nine and 10. And we know that anything over two is not good. Um, and then C stands for coagulopathy. So that would be HAC, hypothermia, acidosis, and coagulopathy. And so if you're a visual person and you like to see pictures and that's how you learn best, you actually can just plug it into Google Images and type in trauma triad of death and you'll see a triangle. And on each side of that triangle, it will have one of these words. So HAC. And we know that patients can easily go into coagulopathy um, when they tend to be cold, when they tend to be acidotic. And they could just be going into that because they're not in stage one of shock, not in stage two of shock, but on their way to stage three shock, which we know is irreversible shock. Um, we know that their clotting cascades and their clotting patterns change very rapidly. That's just what happens in the body from a pathophysiological state when you're in a trauma scenario and 
you know, you have the fight or flight and epinephrine secreted in a response to try to speed things up. But if you don't have enough blood, let's say you've lost, you know, a liter of blood from a GSW to the chest, you lost a liter of blood at the scene, they've transported you, and you arrive to the recess room and you're already down like a liter and some change. What do you think is going to happen to that patient's clotting cascade? So this takes you back to nursing school when you talk about different factors, you know, the factor eight and the factor 10 and all of those lovely things that we have, fibrin, fibrinogen, PT, PTT, INR. When we say coags, there's a reason why we care. And that's because trauma patients typically can go into a DIC if their coagulopathies are not managed um, appropriately in the resuscitation room or your trauma bay, whatever you refer to it as. So that is the lethal trauma triad hack, hypothermia, acidosis, and coagulopathy. So let's just talk about a patient that you might see this type of thing in, which actually could be any trauma patient that you could apply it to. So let's say that you're working and you are going to receive a patient who's a 24-year-old male and he was attempting to rob a 7-Eleven and while he was just the robber was distracted while he was filling his bag with money and other things because this is an adult specialty merchandise store um the owner decided yeah this is my perfect golden opportunity his he was distracted and so the owner pulled out his handgun he pulled out his Glock 19 and he let the robber have it so he shot this um alleged robber will say uh three times before the the guy fell down so now um ems has arrived on scene the patient's unresponsive with agonal breathing and lying in a large pool of blood and again this goes back to thinking about what you have when you get it meaning that 60 seconds of silence that you need to give to the medics when they roll into the drama room is so critical um, because they're going to tell you precisely how much blood that is. So large pool of blood, they'll usually estimate for you and say like a half a liter or a liter, whatever it may be, but always be listening to what they have to say because that's crucial information. And if you're not listening or you're the scribe and you did not put that in your nurse's notes, you can see how things would progress for this patient where people might mistake that he did not lose that much blood, but he was already basically drowning in a large pool of his own blood on scene. So initial vitals are as follows. Respirators are 36, BP 95 over 62, and heart rate 106. So they intubated him. And they went ahead and established two large bore IVs, got some LR infusing uh, wide open. And then further assessment reveals, oh my goodness, he's got uh, hemorrhage occurring from a GSW to the left upper chest. His abdomen is also distended and firm. And so basically total of three holes and there's like two in his belly and one in his chest. So... What can happen to this patient? Well, we just talked a little bit about it. Progressive shock and death, right? So thinking about that trauma triad of death, hypothermia, acidosis, coagulopathy, 
is this patient at risk for all of that? Well, of course he is, because pretty much any trauma patient is, um, especially one that's bleeding. And remember in the old days, those of you that are older than, I don't know, we'll just say 25, those of you that have done trauma for a long period of time, back in the day, we used to load up our trauma patients with lots and lots of crystalloids. We'd give them like eight, nine, ten liters of fluid, and then, you know, the next day you'd do trauma rounds or whatever, and your patient would look like the Michelin man in the ICU. And it's actually not funny because third spacing was real. But we didn't have the EBP back then or the data to support not giving them 10 liters of crystalloid. So now, um, thank you very much to, it's unfortunate that we have um, the information that we have because it comes from war. Um, The military started giving their own whole blood, patients whole whole blood. They started giving people whole blood. Um, and, And miraculously, it's now finally bleeding over into the civilian world. See what I did there? Uh... But really, truly, we are going to start giving whole blood to people. But current practice in most trauma centers is the one-to-one-to-one with the FFP, PRBCs, and platelets. And so the problem with that is those are components. That's just a part of it, right? So you're giving a patient three different parts, but what would be better for the patient is to give them what they need, which is whole blood. But we're getting there. Um, less I digress, but back in the day, we used to just load them up with fluids and all we did was just hemodilute the heck out of them. And then finally, we've come to the point where we are today, where we're like, okay, we're going to start giving our patient whole blood from the get go. Um, typically we'll just start fluids because that's what, you know, obviously medics aren't driving around with a bunch of O-neg in the rig. So they'll start the crystalloids, um, and you'll see a lot of studies, too, um, inclu- if you have time to look up the Andromeda shock um, study that's out there. But there have been a lot of studies recently that I've read about EBP supporting LR over NS. So there's a thing called hyperchloremic acidosis as well, which people are saying, you know, um, that's just contributing further to the problem. That's part of the problem, not part of the solution. Because if you're giving a trauma patient even just, let's just say, oh, I don't know, two, just two liters of saline because they have a prolonged transport time to the nearest trauma center, hyperchloremic acidosis in a patient who's already hemorrhaging is not going to help that patient, right? Because we know that acidosis is part of the trauma triad of death. So any one of those components, hypothermia, acidosis, or coagulopathy, they all can kind of trigger one another. You see, it's it's this vicious cycle. So if you already have a patient who's acidotic because they have massive hemorrhage, either externally or internally, whatever, they're bleeding. So they're already acidotic. We'll say they're like 7.15, and now you're giving them two liters of normal saline, and then they get that hyperchloremic acidosis, you can understand, <clears throat> excuse me, where that's not setting your patient up for a good outcome. Um, you always want to set them up for the best outcome possible. And of course, with acidosis, we have poor tissue perfusion and decreased cardiac output. And when you think about a patient who's actively hemorrhaging, 
you know, heart rate times stroke volume equals cardiac output, the last thing that we want to do is complicate the cardiac output further. So acidosis just puts a big kink in that. So what little cardiac output that your patient did have, um, the acidosis is going to inhibit that further. Um, you can see where, you know, tissue oxygenation and perfusion and ventilation, all of those things, if you don't even have the RBCs to carry the oxygen throughout the body, and then now you add acidosis on top of that, um, hypoxemia, lactic acidosis, all of those things are not good for your trauma patient. So again, diminishes the cardiac output. Um, it also, interestingly enough, decreases the catecholamines that you have, that the patient has circulating throughout their body. So remember the adrenal glands, little caps that sit on top of the kidneys, um, secrete epinephrine and norepinephrine when a patient has, let's say they just got shot three times. So in an effort for your body to try to attempt to correct things, of course, the epinephrine and norepinephrine is secreted. And acidosis actually decreases the effectiveness of the catecholamine circulating throughout the body. So again, this is contributing more to worse tissue perfusion. And again, oxygenation and ventilation and all of the things that actually really matter that are crucial for our trauma patient. So it doesn't take a lot. Um, even if your pH drops from like 7.4 to 7.0, the effectiveness of the coagulation cascade decreases by 55 to 70%. And again, remember your factors. So factor 7A can't even work like procoagulant drugs. So let's say we want to get our patient to clot. Um, let's say you're like um, a level three trauma center and you're going to be transporting your patient to a higher level level of care and you want to give them a procoagulant drug before they get transported, whether it's by HELO or ground, because you you got their ISTAT pH and it's it's low, it's like 7.12 and that's not good. Those procoagulant drugs like factor 7A can't even work in acidic environments. So those are all things to consider. Um, let's continue on with our patient. So now you're getting the patient in your recess room. So his vitals are as follows. BP is 72 over 56, heart rate 123, sinus on the monitor, no ectopy, respirator 40. Um, I don't know why it says that. I thought he was tubed already, but maybe someone's just bagging him too fast. Um, it says his SAT's not good, 93, and his, temp, his core temperature is 34.9. So when you're thinking about Celsius versus Fahrenheit, just remember 37.0 is 98.6, and then anything above or below that is going a certain direction. So this patient's cold, right? His core temperature is 34.9. And so what do we know about a cold trauma patient? Well... Again, back to that trauma triad of death, right? So if they're cold, they can't clot, um, you know, they're hypothermic, and again, metabolic acidosis. All of those things are pretty much happening before our very eyes, right? So again, on down through your physical assessment, you have pupils are pearl, three equal bilat, slightly sluggish, um, 
It does say that you have a seven and a half ET tube in place. Breast sounds are absent on the left and coarse on the right. Uh, GSW, the left chest, is having a large amount of bloody drainage. So just right there, okay, now what's the next step, right? Chest tube. Chest tube, chest tube, chest tube. Um, radial pulses are weak and thready. Extremities cool and clammy. Okay, here's your gases. ABG, 7.21 for the pH. CO2 is 47. Um, bicarb is 16. PaO2 is 88 with a base BE or base excess of negative 4. And chemistry, your I stats are... Your potassium is 3.6, sodium is 134, mag is 1.9, BUN is 14, and creat is 0.8. So, what do we think we want to do for this patient? Well, hopefully you thought ahead of time and you have your level 1 or your Belmont ready to go. And we mentioned the chest tube, also that chest x-ray, you've already got the portable x-ray in there you're going to go ahead and get your chest and your pelvis and your fast exam done prep for a chest tube you got your level one your belmont going but what's the number one thing that you think of off the top of your head that you better start right now right quick because you know he's going to go to the or and the trauma surgeon will pretend you're at um a level two trauma center and the trauma surgeon is not exactly at the bedside at this moment so there's just a little delay but not too much he'll be here shortly so what do we want to do? If you said MTP or massive transfusion protocol, you are right. So volume, 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 right? Because the longer you let this guy sit around who's hypothermic, who's already acidotic, who who knows, we got to look at his, his chest film, but we know he needs a chest tube. Um, all of these things, and of course, I'm sure he has... Um, a couple bullets in his abdomen so who knows if he has um, peritoneal contamination with that but he's probably got nicked his mesenteric artery so he's bleeding in his belly I'm sure his fast exam will be positive and just think about your patient's vitals again he's hypotensive he's tachycardic all the signs are there right so he's compensating and then he's He's lost an estimated, or EVL, an estimated blood loss of quite a bit, right? He's attempting to compensate. And when you talk about stage one, stage two, or stage three of shock, at this point, does it really matter? Because the patient's actually actively trying to die in front of us. So we have to do some pretty quick interventions in order to save his life. But MTP is going to be one of my very first choices after, you know, stabilization of the chest tube, double check the ET tube, um, get that hemothorax, all that thing. But you have to give him volume, right? Because if you don't give him volume, he's just going to keep going down this cascade um, to which there's no return because he's going to go into progressive or irreversible shock after that. So... Again, you have to have a normal body temperature, right? Your body requires it in order to do ATP and Krebs cycle and all of the lovely things that it needs to do for coagulation. So when your temperature drops, your bleeding can increase dramatically. And do we really want this guy to keep bleeding? So then you've got your fibrin, your fibrinogen, your platelet sequestration. Your platelets don't do what they're supposed to do, right? They're supposed to form that plug. Well, you've got platelet dysfunction, 
the longer that you're allowing the hypothermia to progress. The longer it goes on, the worse that it is. He's already super cold. Um, you're not just going to give this guy a couple liters of cold IV fluids, right? All, all fluids, all the time, and, and infused in any trauma patient, any sick GI bleed, anybody who's sick, 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 think warm, warm, warm. Because it is possible that these people can go down this clotting cascade. So just think, if you're, if you're thinking MTP or even, like I say, your patient is just a super sick I don't know, sepsis patient or something of that nature. You you just want to think, okay, am I really going to be dumping, you know, all this cold fluid in this patient? You know, so all, at least in this trauma case, all fluids that you put in any sick trauma patient just need to be warm. So you've got your level one there or your Belmont. You've got warm fluids. You've got warm blankets. Make sure you turn up the temperature in the room. You know, I know the trauma team, we, we don't like it. We don't like to be hot and sweaty and nasty with our gowns and our our lid on and everything else. However, 80 degrees is like ideal for your trauma rooms. So, yeah, I know it's not fun for us, but that's not why we're there. It's for the patient who's already having clotting cascade issues, who's already hypothermia. Um, and if you live in a region... Um, like a lot of us do, where there's really, really bad winters and it gets very, very cold, think of your patient who even was a prolonged uh, extrication from an MVC. You know, you can imagine negative 20, negative 30 with a windshell, and a prolonged extrication on a patient from a motor MVC, um, how this hypothermia alone could really just be one of the things that makes the patient have a bad outcome unless you address it. So a lot of the things that we've basically come to the realization in the trauma world is we have to do better at DCR. So, you know, damage control, resuscitation, get them to the definitive area of care for the trauma patient, which is typically the OR, not the ER, because they need to have... Um, you know, their their trauma surgeon needs to go in and just stop the bleed and do what they need to do. And the longer they hang around the ER um, or in our shock room or wherever they are, the worse their outcome can be, right? Because sometimes we don't always have it at a patient-friendly temperature and they're already cold when they come to us. So again, so MTP, if your um, facility has MTP protocol, it should be a cooler that lab, you know, brings to you. And then you just keep track of your INO. Please, please, please track your INO, especially if your patient's getting transferred to a higher level of care because it is crucial. So please don't just say, oh, well, we'll just eyeball it. No, before that patient leaves your trauma room, you need to tally up what you've given them and how much it is, especially if you've given them you know, a whole cooler full of blood products, okay? It's crucial for the next facility to know what you've given them because we need to know that that patient's actually going to be able to put things out. We're talking about renal impairment or no impairment. We don't know that a lot of times when we get our patients, but we sure do need to keep track of everything so that we can decide that at a later date, Okay, so we know that um, we talked just briefly about DIC or disseminated intravascular coagulation. Um, 
just real quick, I think one of the cases that really stood out in my mind was a patient who uh, was about mm, 50-something-year-old male, was driving um, a pretty good size, you know, old school F-150. So a big Ford F-150 truck back in the day, like 78-ish, like they were solid. Those trucks were solid. And he was driving down the road just like a normal June evening, although it was completely dark out. And a deer ran in front of his vehicle. So unfortunately, based on his vehicle's dimensions, if you will, it hit right in his grill and came up into his driver's side. So it crashed right into him. So he had um, quite a huge head injury. Um, and of course, some chest trauma, of course, but you know, the dashboard protected that a little bit. Um, we took him to CT and by the time that we had actually taken him to CT, he started oozing from everywhere. So, you know, we intubated, sedated and ventilated him right away because his GCS was less than eight. The medic scooped and ran and he got to our trauma center pretty quickly. But by the time we got him to CT, he started oozing from every IV site started to see blood in his foley and out of his nose and and we knew that he had um actually had an uncle herniation at that point cuz we were actively scanning him and we could see you know you couldn't see the nice butterfly on the CT of his head it was literally a, he was herniating right in front of us and going into DIC so when i think of DIC i think of that patient um but just how quickly that that happened is it really is mind-boggling, I guess, the first time that you see it. So um, also keep in mind, if you're doing MTP, that you should be having some kind of calcium replacement therapy because we know that the way that the blood is stored, you know, calcium chloride replacement is crucial because hypocalcemia can be caused because of the citrate that the PRBCs, you know, there's a preservative in there. This goes back to my whole blood uh, argument of why we need to be giving whole blood. Um, and we will be, and it's trending in some places. I think Dallas is already doing it. Uh, however, most places are still doing products. So you've got that citrate, it's preservative, it's, it like chelates or binds um, to calcium, rendering it inactive in the body. So therefore, now you've got a patient who's hypocalcemia on top of everything. So for every three grams of citrate, um, well, there's about three grams of citrate in each unit of donated blood. And, you know, the adult liver can't metabolize that. So then we have a huge problem. On top of that, if your patient's taking calcium channel blockers, oh, on top of that, then they're predisposed to cardiac dysrhythmia. So just keep in mind that um, you need to be eye on that calcium. So the hypocalcemia needs to be given. You can give it calcium gluconite or calcium chloride, but um, whatever your protocol is for your massive transfusion, just keep in mind that your patient is going to go further down the rabbit hole of hypovolemic shock and continue bleeding if you don't do something about the hypocalcemia. And also, don't just check it once. So there are trauma centers that have very well drawn up MTP protocols that say, okay, at this after this many units, we check the calcium. After this many units, we check the calcium. And so just keep that in mind. 
that that should be a consideration, whether you're a trauma ICU nurse, um, neuro ICU nurse, um, ED nurse, just wherever you work, just keep that in mind. So the MTP actually does facilitate some other things, including the calcium chloride replacement. So, all right. Um, let me just give you, um, the end of the story. So let's say that you start your MTP protocol you go ahead and the trauma surgeons actually arrive now and you have MTP, you're on your first cooler, but you're doing your one-to-one-to-one of your PRBCs and your FFP and your platelets, and that's all going very well. Um, Of course, the fast was positive, so there is bleeding in the belly. Um, Your uh, resident was able to put in a chest tube to the affected side, and you did get out, mm, I don't know, about 750 mLs of blood. Now keep in mind here, and he lost like a liter at the scene. So now your patient is um, getting MTP, he's getting volume, and you get a new set of ice stats. And his uh, pH is now 7.32, which is better from where it was. And he um, is actually sustaining with a MAP about 65 and um, so your perfusion's good, he's on the vent, his numbers look good, um, and so he is going to go to surgery. And his blood pressure now is, I don't know, we'll say 97 over 62. But um, I just made that off the top of my head. So if you calculate it out and the map is not at least 65, um, I just made it up. So Bottom line is your patient's getting better because you were thinking on your feet and you happen to have that MTP protocol in place and that actually saved the day for the patient. So the patient goes to surgery and has DCR or damage control resuscitation and has a pretty good outcome. You know, he had the hemothorax um, and they went into the belly and did... um, open abdomen he basically just left the abdomen open for a little bit so um he did go to the icu and um that's it that's the end of the day uh you do have we'll say you have teg um in your hospital so you have thromboelastograms to help your patients have even better outcome because that's going to help you have a more goal-directed resuscitation, right, after the fact. So it's important to have MTP in your protocol in your trauma center, even if you're a level three, but it's also important to use that TEG machine or Rotem or whatever you have, because you have goal-directed resuscitation with your clotting cascade, and your patients get better faster, so... Just keep that in mind and just remember HACK, which is hypothermia, acidosis, and coagulopathy. And thank you very much for listening. And you all have a great day, evening, or afternoon. Bye-bye.